I have to admit, I am I'm overjoyed to be preaching this text this morning. Um, you know, sometimes, to be entirely honest and transparent, you get a text and it's like, whew, that one's going to take some work. This one, this one, not so much. Um, this, is, this is the crux of the book of John. All of us know what it's like, whether it's a job or a presentation or a project or whatever it may be. You put in all this work, go through all the details, you drive every nail, you look over every word, you proofread every sentence, and then it comes down to that moment, whatever it may be, that moment where you present, that moment where it's inspected, that moment where everything is on the line. And that's what we have before us today in these two verses at the end of chapter 20. Everything that John has written before, 20 chapters worth of God-inspired knowledge comes down to these two verses. It's John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Pray with me. Father, we come before you humble that these two verses even exist. When we rightly understand ourselves, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that we do not deserve this. That life is the farthest thing that we deserve. Father, our hearts are, are wayward, they are wicked, but you saw fit to make a way. Not only did you see fit to make a way, but then you told us about it. You inspire John to write these 21 chapters so that we may know and that we may have evidence so that we may believe and in believing we may have life. Father, we ask now as we rightly divide your word that you soften our hearts, that you give us perspective to rightly understand your word, that you give us courage to live out that which you put before us. And most of all, God, we ask that you give us belief. Belief that changes who we are, belief that passes us from death into life. God, we ask you grant us those things. God, I ask you as I divide your word this morning that you humble me, that I be a servant of your word. And that at the end of the day, you receive glory from it all. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen. Um, so I have a little bit of a formula that I follow when I preach. It's nothing, um, nothing heroic, nothing profound. It's just the way I have learned to, to think and to process and to devise scripture. So it's real simple. We're going to spend the first half of the sermon talking about what does this text mean? On the surface, for those of us who have been in the church and have been around, it sounds very familiar. I mean, this is like VBS verse 101 right here. Like every kid at VBS learns this verse at some point. So it's familiar to us. 
Um, but I think as we, as we dive into the scripture, look at the, the Greek, the context, I think we may uncover some things that we haven't considered before. At least I know that I did as I was um, preparing this week. So that's what we'll do first. It's just what does the text mean? Verses 30 and 31, what do these two verses mean um, as they are plainly written here in the book of John? And then from that, we'll move on to what does it mean to us today? What are, what are we to do with these two verses? How are we supposed to take these words that were written to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and apply them to our lives today? So let's get started. Uh, we'll start in verse 30. Verse 30, it, we will not spend a ton of time there, um, but we will just discuss what John is telling us. Verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. So up until this point, you start with the incarnation in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. And then you go all the way through chapter 20, through the signs and wonders of Jesus, through the life of Jesus, and we culminate here, right after Jesus has revealed himself to Thomas. Thomas has touched the wounds in Christ's hand, and the resurrection is complete in Christ, is awaiting his ascension. So John says, essentially, I wrote some of the things, but this, that isn't all of it. There's more of it that are not contained within these first 20 chapters. To give you an idea of what those things may be, acts over nature, and these are, these are miracles of Jesus Christ found in other, the other Gospels. Um, Jesus calms the storm in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's the fish with a coin in Matthew 17, and there's the fig tree that withers in Mark 21, excuse me, Matthew 21 and Mark 11. Healing of the sick and injured. Christ healed a man with leprosy. The Roman centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law, two men possessed with devils, a man with palsy, a woman who was bleeding, two blind men, dumb devil-possessed men, Canaanite woman's daughter, a boy with a devil, two blind men, including Bartimaeus, a demon-possessed man in the synagogue, a blind man in Bethsaida, a crippled woman, ten men with leprosy, and the high priest's servant. All of those are other healings recorded in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are not included in John's account of the gospel. And lastly, the raising of the dead. John does account for Lazarus raising or overcoming death, but he does not account for Jairus' daughter and the widow's son at Nain. Both of those are found in other Gospels and are not contained in this book. At the end of the day, here's the message. The works of God, as proclaimed through the life of Jesus Christ, are immeasurable. The 66 books do not contain all of them. They contain some of them. But the glory of God cannot be contained by a book. John's essentially saying, I gave you a part of this story just so you would have something to believe in. But as you start to know Christ and as your belief starts to grow, you will find riches immeasurable. So John's simply saying, this is some of it, but this isn't all of it. Verse 31. This is where we're going to do some work. Verse says this, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. We're going to spend some time dissecting some of the, the phrases within this verse. On the, on the surface, I think, we, I think we get the message. It's, you know, everything that John has written was written so that we can believe that Christ is the Messiah and have life in his name. Plainly spoken, that's what it says. I think we all get the gist of the message. Um, but I think as we dig into these phrases, 
Um, there will be some things revealed to us that, at least for me, challenged me and, and caused me to rethink, um, rethink salvation in terms of there may be things that I take for granted. There may be assumptions that I have. There may be life that has occurred. There may be a familiarity with these verses, with this verse, that just has lost its luster. And, you know, I read those verses. Cheyenne came home from VBS last week reciting this very verse. And I hear it, and it's like, yeah, 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 I know it. Yeah, yeah, got it, check. You know, it's easy, it's easy for me to, to take things that are familiar and just cast them off to the side and say, there's nothing, nothing there worthy of my time. First phrase I want us to talk about is, you may believe. But these are written so that you may believe. These being all the works recounted in chapters 1 through chapter 20. And continuing into chapter 21. So you may believe. That phrase is only used three times in the entire New Testament. Um, the word belief is used multiple times. Within the original Greek, that phrase is only used three times. John 6, John 10... John 20, and one, in, one time in 1 John 5. So she's four times, three times outside of this passage. I want us to turn to the use in John 6. So John 6, we're going to read verses 26 through 40. And the reason that I want us to spend some time here is it really helps us unpack what John is saying when he says, you may believe. John 6 says this, Jesus answered, I assure you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. This is a crowd that has approached Jesus. They are questioning him after he has, he has fed them. This is in John 6. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I assure you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the real bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus replies, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but I should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's a lot in that passage. It's a very, very heady passage. Uh, but there's, there's three things that I want us to pull out about this, the use of this phrase, you may believe, that it will be pertin pertinent for us as we continue to unpack this verse. First is the, the use of the phrase is an active phrase. So this is, this is not a one-time activity. This is an ongoing pursuit. 
Um, I, I know for myself, I, I tend to think of belief within the Christian life as a one-time occurrence. There was the time I believed. There's certainly a time we first believe, but this verse points us to something else. This verse is saying that belief is an active, ongoing part of our lives. Second, um, this is a work in the spiritual realm. I think we understand that, but it's worth noting because as it's, it's Jesus is talking to the crowd in that passage. They continually ask him, oh, we want the bread. And Christ said, no, 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 I'm not here to give you bread. I'm here to give you something else. And they said, okay, okay, we don't want the bread. But we want to be able to do all the cool stuff, you know, like heal people, raise them from the dead. Yeah, that's what we want to be able to do. And Christ says, no, that's not the will of my Father. Christ says, bread, miracles, all secondary things. The will of my Father has to do with the condition of your spiritual soul. So let's not think of belief as something that we will ourselves to do. Something where we merely make a decision with our head. This is a spiritual act. Third, belief is the work of the Father. Christ says this, starting in verse 35, moving down to verse 40. He says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of, of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. So uh, for me, growing up in the church, I think there kind of becomes this amnesia of what happens in salvation. I think it's very easy for us as, as human beings, as people who want to set up our own kingdoms and be our own gods, to say, oh, I believed in Jesus. Look at what I have done. Thank you. This, the, Christ tells us something very different. Christ says, the ones who come to me are the ones that the Father gives me. People like to set a, a juxtaposition between John and Paul, almost to say the two, the two come at the idea of salvation from different angles. I think this verse tells us something very different. People like to take John 3, set it against Romans 8, and say, well, look, John says this, Paul says this, they aren't even saying the same thing. I think this passage is something very different. Here, John is acknowledging that the source of all belief is the Father. If the Father does not give us to the Son, then there is no belief. The fact that any of us get the, the latter part of this verse, the, the life in his name, is only because the Father first gave us to the Son. So we are not the initiator of this relationship. We didn't go knocking up on heaven's door and say, here I am. No, God the Father looked down from his perfect heavenly state and said, that one, that one, that one is yours, son, that one is yours. Moving on in the verse, these are written so that you may believe this belief being an active, ongoing work in our lives, initiated by the Father that occurs in the spiritual realm. 
that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Yet again, very familiar language for those of us who have been in the church and who have been believers. Um, the, the thing that always sticks out to me when I dig into the word Messiah, literally, it's the, the, the Greek translation is Christos. Um, Hebrew, the Hebrew interpretation would have been Messiah. Same word, same, similar meaning. Um, literal translation is the anointed one. When combined with the Son of God, it is the only anointed Son of God, which has implications for the exclusivity of Christ being the only way to right relationship with the Father. The thing that, it, that I always do well to remind myself of is that Jewish readers, Hebrew readers of the word Messiah would have interpreted that word to mean someone to set us free, the appointed one, the anointed one of God to set us free. The word Messiah has, has deep roots in Old Testament prophecy, and the Hebrew reader would, when they heard the word Messiah, they think this is the anointed one who's going to deliver us. The challenge for them and for us is they thought New Testament Hebrews would have thought this is the one who's going to save us from our captors, our captors being the Roman Empire. They thought the Messiah would be a political savior, one who would free them from their captivity. But as we saw in John 6, and as just the, the, the very nature of how the Old Testament unfolds, God had something very different in mind. The Messiah had no impact on the Hebrew peoples being set free from the Romans. God was talking about a spiritual freedom. He was sending his son to interact in our lives at a spiritual level. He, he, he was not sending his son to free Israel from captivity he was sending his son to free you and to free me from our sin. So Messiah is not only a physical reality, it's more prominently a spiritual one. The Messiah is here to save us from our capture, but that capture is no empire established by man. It is the spiritual capture that seeks to entrap our souls, and the Messiah is here to set us forever free. These are written so that you may believe, belief being an ongoing spiritual work initiated by God, we can believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah being the one who is sent to set us spiritually free. To break the bondage of sin in our lives. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing... So this phrase, by believing, is also only used a few times in the New Testament. It's only used six times outside of its usage here in John 20. Interestingly enough, um, you, read, you read through those six other usages. Five of them are very similar, or translated very similarly to this usage here in John 20, 31. The usage is by believing. Acts 5, however has a different usage. Same, same root Greek word. Acts 5 says this, Many signs and wonders were being done among the people 
through the hands of the apostles. By common consent, they would all meet in Solomon's colonnade. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people praised them highly. Here's the use. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, crowds of both men and women. Now you say, okay, so what? He used the word believers. But notice the transition. By believing is an active phrase. Believers is a noun. So as we walk through verse 31, you, you have the ongoing work of belief in the one who will set us free. And by believing, that by believing can also be translated as the noun believers. So our belief has now become an identity. Belief has become the believer. So why is that significant for us? In 21st century post-Vietnam America, there's a lot of conversation about identity. Who are we? Who am I in relation to the world around me? How do I define what I should be? John says here in, in chapter 20, verse 31, that this is your core identity as a believer. And as a believer in the Messiah, you have been set free from the bondage of sin. That is our core identity. Now, that sounds easy on paper. It sounds easy for me to stand up here and say that. But when we walk outside these doors, our identity is going to be competed for the moment we leave. It's going to be competed for by our jobs, by our families, by our failures, by our regrets. Everything around us is going to try to define us as something other than believers in the one who was called to set us free. We see this process starting to evolve, to evolve in verse 31. You have the, the, the spiritual act initiated by the Father of an ongoing work of belief in the Messiah, the one who was called to set us free, and in doing so, he grants us a new identity. The next logical question is, what does that identity allow us to do? It's a very great question. John finishes the verse that you may have life in his name. Word life here, it's used over 60 times in the New Testament. An overwhelming majority of those uses refer to eternal life. So our identity as believers that have been set free by the blood of Christ purchases for us eternal life and right relationship with God. But there is another usage of this term, life, and it has to do with life here, today. Paul in Acts 17, he's in, he's in Athens with the ancient Greeks. He goes to the, the Areopagus to, to speak to the philosophers of Greece. He walks by a tomb that says to an unknown God, and this is what he says. It says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. 
So Paul's usage here is the life that we live on this earth today, which means when John talks about life, he does mean eternal life, but he also means the life that you and I walk out in this moment. The term life is also descriptive. Um, It's descriptive of what life here and today should be or could be. In our discussion about the Messiah, we said that this was the anointed one who came to set us spiritually free. We love to talk about the word sanctification in churches. Um, I think it's often a misinterpreted and misunderstood concept. It is true, nonetheless, but I think it is misunderstood. As we live out this life in his name, life in the name of Jesus, our life should be a progression of freedom. The bondage of sin in our life should have less and less and less and less reign over us. Why do I say this? Um, We live in a society, in a time, yet again, post-Vietnam America, where the concept of freedom has been lost on us. We don't understand freedom. 200 years ago, there was a distinct difference between the use of the word freedom and the use of the word liberty. Liberty applies to a political reality. This is what the, the Israelites were hoping to achieve and to gain from the Messiah to get away from the Roman Empire. They wanted liberty to be free. They wanted liberty to have the ability to do what they needed to do politically. The word freedom had a very different meaning. Freedom was a spiritual reality. And being a spiritual reality... It didn't matter where your stance was on your political freedom, your political, excuse me, your, I, see, I even do it now, political liberty, you could still be free. Because while other men can control our political power, no other man can control our soul and its freedom. No man can keep us from the belief in the work of the Messiah. And so while you may have someone who is in the Worst political situation impossible. Worst political situation possible. His soul can be just as free as yours, just me and you sitting in this room today. There's a juxtaposition here for us to consider. We we live back to the conversation identity. We live in a world that is obsessed with being free. I want to define for myself. And it's easy for us to to take a step back and look at a cultural conversation and say, well, those people over there, they're a little crazy, and they just say everything can be defined for themselves. That's easy to do. But when we look at our own lives and things want to be imposed upon us, we have the same reaction. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going to define for me what's best, and nobody else should talk about it. This is the world we live in. This is the world we live in, where where happiness is defined by whatever I want it to be. That goodness is defined by whatever I want it to be. Everything is up to my own interpretation. And if we dare speak against it, 
people get vilely offended. Like nothing else. Like nothing else, people get vilely offended. The life that, that John is describing here, a life that has been set free by the Messiah in the spiritual realm, is a life that exudes the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We all know the verse. But at the bottom of all of those things, of all of those fruits, there's, there's a vine. And that vine is the Messiah. That vine is not you and me. If we ever want to exhibit those things in our life, if we ever want to love, if we ever want to be joyful, if we ever want to be peaceful, we have to be emptied of ourselves. Totally and utterly emptied of ourselves. Last part of, the, part of the verse is in his name. This harkens back to John 6. This is John's reminder. All of this, belief, Messiah, Life, identity, starts with God the Father and ends with God the Father. If it's not life in his name, it is not life at all. It is just a different form of bondage. In short, the whole endeavor of salvation begins and ends with the work of the Father. He gives us to the Son, as we see in John 6, and the Son will not lose us, as we see in John 6 and John 20. It begins and ends at the source of life eternal and life abundant. This means for us that this work is so deeply spiritual that we cannot do it. This is and has to be the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We cannot have any belief or identity or a life apart from it. We cannot will our way to belief. We cannot change our identity at its root. We cannot find life. These are the, the work of a miracle-working Jewish carpenter who shed his blood to pay a price that we could not pay. So let's recap th verse 31 with what we've learned. But these are written so that you may believe, you may believe being a spiritual work that God began in us that will continue for the entirety of our lives, that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed, the chosen one called to set us free. And by believing, believing being a new identity given to us as a believer, as the one who has been set free, and by believing that we may have life in his name, a life that can be free from the bondage of sin now and deserving of life eternal, where the bondage is released for eternity because of the glory of the Father, the sacrifice of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. So, what does all this mean? How do we, how do we take these things and apply them to our lives? Over, over everything that I'm about to say, remember the last thing we just said that apart from the glory of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, none of this is possible. None of it's possible. This is a deep-rooted spiritual work that only God can do. So, for us today, 
if you, if you find yourself in a position where the work of belief has not begun in you, then I ask you to throw yourself at the feet of King Jesus and beg for him to start that work in you. There's no, there's, you have no ability in your current state to approach the throne of God and make a declaration that you believe. You do not have that ability. So cast yourself at the feet of King Jesus and beg for him to do this work in you. I realize that's a, that's a large ask for someone who has never believed. But this is what I have to say. This is what I believe Christ has to say to us. This is, this is, we are talking about the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, whose works are collected in these 66 books, who has proven his goodness and his faithfulness to his people over and over and over and over again. And as if that was not enough, he sent his only son to this earth to live a life you could not live, to die a death you could not die, and to become a sacrifice on your behalf. We live, it, we live in a time and in a place and in a culture where Christianity carries baggage. Everybody knows a bad Christian. Yes, no, nobody's arrived. No one this side of eternity has, has walked out of the church building perfect, perfectly free, perfectly unaffected by sin. We're all affected by sin. But for the one here today who has not believed, don't let that be the reason that you don't experience the glory of God. For those of us who are found covered by the blood of Christ, few things to remind ourselves. Number one, belief is not a one-time affair. You don't walk an aisle and say, I'm good. See you in 60 years. It's not how this works. It's not what John's telling us. John's telling us that this is a lifetime work done by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So if we have the mindset as believers that Eh, we're good. I did the thing. I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. Meh. See you in 60 years. I beg you to ask the Lord humbly to change your heart. Because there is joy untold. There is goodness unknown that you will miss as you walk out the rest of your days on this earth. Amen. Secondly, what's our identity? If we're found in the blood of Christ, what's our identity? When we lay our head on our pillow at night and it's us with our thoughts, who are we? Who are we? Are we first and foremost believers? Believers who are walking a path of freedom out of bondage to sin? Or are we defined by our successes, our failures, our hurts, our struggles? What are we defined by? Who are we? This is what I know. I know that, that as we better understand our identity as believers, as those who have been bought with a price, whose blood, who, whose life is covered by the blood of Christ and who's walking out in freedom, as we progress in that, our lives will start to look odd, just strange, um, especially as compared to the world around us. And that's not to throw stones at the world around us. We will just 
do things that don't make sense. Because the world around us, at the core, at the bottom of our society and our culture itself, is freedom. I want to be able to define for me what truth is, what happiness is. And the believer says, no. Self is gone. I'm being emptied of myself, and so I'm going to make decisions that don't make sense to those who at the bottom is self. I'm going to make decisions to do things that are seemingly financially irresponsible. Like, why would you sell everything you have and move to a place where you're going to have nothing? Why would you do that? Why at age 80 would you leave the comfort of a life that you've worked so hard to build to go to a place where you'll surely die? Why would you do that? Why would you make those decisions? Why would you do those things? John Piper had a famous sermon, it's been 20 years ago now, um, where he, he exhorted the church not to waste its life. In that sermon, he told the story of two ladies, late 70s, early 80s, both medical professionals, left everything they had here in the States, moved to Thailand, left everything they had, kids, grandkids, whole nine yards. They said, we're going to make a decision to further the glory of God to the people of Thailand. They worked there, toiled there for four years, then one day, they're driving up the mountainside, brakes went out in the truck, off the cliff they went, dead. 81 years old. And Piper asked his church that day, he said, is this a tragedy? Is this a tragedy? And he said, absolutely not. This is not a tragedy. These are ladies whose core identity had been so changed by the power of the gospel that they made a decision unthinkable to anyone other than God. He said, you know what the real tragedy is? Those amongst us who live and toil, they retire early to play golf and ride on their golf cart. He said, that is a tragedy. So I ask us today, what is our identity? Are we walking the path to freedom where self is destroyed? Or are we cowering in the comfort and successes that we have today? Lastly, I'll close with this. I want us to realize this morning that this starts with the glory of God. God began a work by sending his son to this earth. Lived the life we could not live, died the death we could not die, overcame death, rose and ascended back to heaven. All that began with the glory of God the Father. God the Father then saw sent to give us as believers to Christ that we may have freedom. And in that freedom, we walk a path. We walk a path from where we started, increasing in our freedom, being released from the bondage of sin, until one day that work will be completed. And we will be free from sin forever. And when we do so, that will bring the ultimate glory to God the Father.
It begins with the glory of God the Father, and it ends with the glory of God the Father. So I ask us today, what are we going to live our lives for? Are we going to take the book of John and say, oh, that's nice, I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to define for myself what I want my life to look like? Or are we going to substitute our life and give it up for the glory of God the Father? Let us pray. Father, we, we are humbled by the truth of your word. We are humbled to see your plan and salvation so clearly laid out for us. God, we ask that as we leave this building and we go out into this world to live the life that you put before us, God, we ask that we would not set ourselves up as our own kings, building our own kingdoms, but that we would give ourselves over to you for ourselves to be destroyed and to be replaced by that which cannot be defeated, which cannot be overcome, and that will be enduring and lasting. God, I ask now as we, as we worship you, God, I ask that we beg for your work in our life. If it's, the work of, if it's for the work of belief to begin, we beg that you do it in us. If it's for us to beg that the work of belief continue, I ask that we do it. If it's for us to beg for our identity to be more transformed into a free, Christ-like believer, I ask that we do it. And God, above all, we ask that no matter what happens here today, that you receive glory from it all. In your precious holy name we pray.